Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs. From the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the song. From the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts. Whether you're a songwriter, a music lover, or just a fan of pop culture, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you don't miss out on a single episode. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Lucky Break from Grammy winner Melissa Manchester's 2004 album When I Look Down That Road. Manchester signed her first music publishing deal in 1968 at the age of 17 before going on to work as a backup singer for Bette Midler. She came to prominence as an artist with the 1975 single Midnight Blue, which climbed number six on Billboard's pop chart and hit the number one spot on the adult contemporary rankings. Co-written with Carol Bayer Sager, it was the first of nine Manchester-penned compositions to hit the top 40. Of those, a half dozen reached the top 10 on the adult contemporary chart. In addition to writing her own hits as a performer, including Just Too Many People and Just You and I, she also found success with other artists' versions of her songs, including the top 10 hit Coming From the Rain for The Captain and Tennille, and Whenever I Call You Friend, which was a top 5 pop hit for Kenny Loggins and Stevie Nicks in 1978. Her current album, You Gotta Love the Life, was recently released and is her first collection of all-original material in nearly 10 years. The album was funded by fans, supporters, and special friends who gave to an online campaign through Indiegogo. One of our listeners will have the opportunity to win an autographed copy of the CD, You Gotta Love the Life. Simply go to our website at songcraftshow.com and send us a message. Say, You Gotta Love the Life in the body of your message and you'll be entered to win. Watch our website for details of our winner coming up next month. In the meantime, it is our honor and pleasure to welcome Melissa Manchester to Songcraft. Melissa, so glad to have you with us today. Thank you very much. I'd love to know how you approach the process of selecting the songs for this album. Um, I start by uh, working on uh, arrangements for songs on the stage. That's Mm. really where I I work stuff out. And because I have the audience there, they're along for the journey. Um, So uh, that's that's where we started the rendition of Be My Baby, Let's Face the Music and Dance, all of those classic songs. Um, But then I was doing a lot of writing and I was going through a lot of personal changes. And mm. so the stuff just kept coming up to the surface. Yeah. And that's, that's how the, the shape of the album showed up. So you kind of got to do a little real-time market testing for, and it sounds like a crass term, but you're having the opportunity to, to be on stage and say, but people are really reacting to this. Or absolutely. Really, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, because that's, that's where they are... Uh, unwittingly part of the process and I didn't realize that that my fans were so interested in the process. Well and it, it seems like today we live in a world of, of social media where celebrities are tweeting and have Facebook pages mm-hmm. and you do see kind of that shift in like we want to be let in to the behind the scenes so to speak. Well yes and and to that point it was really interesting and I wrote about this in the liner notes what I learned from posting so much on Facebook and really keeping people abreast of of how this was unfolding because it unfolded on so many levels at once right. that that even when 
even when people know how you pulled the rabbit out of the hat, they still get thrilled when the bunny shows up. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's right. just incredible. Right, right. Yeah, yeah it right. becomes part of it. Yeah. yeah, and I think that there maybe at one time there was more of this thing of the performer has a certain mystique, you know, that now um, people like the idea of I, I have a sort of a connection to this person. Mm-hmm. You know, I have I was a part of this. I mm-hmm. donated money for this crowdfunding campaign. You know, mm-hmm. I had a hand in seeing this album come to life. I think just the thinking has shifted in that regard. It has. It's sort of the democratization hmm. of music making. Yeah. Uh, and and for me, in my experience, there was this uh, this robust delight and back and forth of energy partially because not only were the fans invested in this by their contributions but because where we were where we were recording this which was down at Citrus College every day during these amazing recording sessions students were coming in just just to sit and watch wow. musical discussions between myself and my musicians. Yeah. A lot of them had never been around musicians because they're all doing tracks in a garage, and right, you know right, it's nobody right. but the pizza guy right. who shows up once in a while. Right, right. And so here we were. The back and forth of energy was so incredible. Yeah. On top of which, it was my students at USC. Yeah. Who had introduced me into yeah. the idea of crowdfunding. Yeah. So wow. I understand so cool. you you teach a singing class at the University of Southern California. It's, it's sort of a singing class. Yeah, I tell started, us about I, that. Well, I actually, um, I'm an adjunct professor at USC Thornton School of Music, yeah. and I've been teaching there for four years, and I was invited to do a master class there four years ago, and they keep inviting me back, which yeah. is lovely. <laughs> and I and I teach really whatever my students want to talk about. Mm. Sometimes, because they're mostly pop students with an occasional musical theater kid, they, they either want to talk about their song structure or they want to talk about performance. And as I tell them right away, I teach the things that won't be changing in the music industry. Right, wow. right. Cool. And I, yes, because I'm coming to them from the 45 year old uh, long distance run right. of a career. And I remember very clearly what the beginning of my adventure felt like still. Yeah, yeah. They can't imagine what 45 months <laughs> right. into this <laughs> right, will feel right. like. Yeah. So I, you know, I teach them about. Uh, different things like I, I, I tell them my truth which is just because you wrote the song doesn't mean you know everything about it mm-hmm. and if you're lucky enough to have a song really welcomed into the world uh, to keep it fresh is part of your responsibility and it's it's a it's a mysterious process it's yeah. a beautiful process because yeah. it reflects your life and mm. how your life deepens and widens and is reflected in your song. Yeah. I think it's really cool that you're having the opportunity to kind of mentor these students mm-hmm. and take them sort of deeper into the creative mm-hmm. process and what, uh, like you say, the the things about music making that aren't going to disappear mm-hmm. in in six months. And then at and the they same are time, me. yeah, they're they turning you on me. to oh the. Oh my god! To the, it's unbelievable. <laughs> so they they told known. you about crowdfunding. Absolutely, my students yeah. would come in every six months with a new EP, you know, shrink wrap and photos yeah. and credits, looking at this CD with five or six songs and I'd say what because I was still in my old thinking wow how did you how did you get this done and I was sure they were going to tell me about an independent label because I was trying to think of how am I going to make another album and they said crowdfunding you should do this and I said great what is that (laughs) you know and they sat with uh, with my manager and I and explained it it was wild and then one of my students became my project manager and I had a street team it was wild yeah so for anyone listening who is not familiar with crowdfunding in a nutshell just uh, tell us what that means well 
your fans, people that are interested in you making more music, creating more music, um, you promise them for different levels of donation some premium, either something downloadable, something that actually can be sent in the mail, an actual hard copy of a CD, uh, a vis- if, it's, if there's enough money donated in my case they were actually invited to come at their own cost to the studio and spend the day and watch what was going on Um, and then you promise them different levels of title either associate producer or angel or whatever Um, but and so that's how we did it you know my fans are not really interested in Merch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they right. don't really care about T-shirts. They yeah. want more music, yeah. and so well, yeah. in another way, you would seem to be uh, the perfect candidate because you think of, of the length of a career, and, and you you make a bunch of records, and you do a bunch of touring, and you build up, and you probably amass a fan base that you know is there because you can see them on a on a statistical sound scan sheet. Yeah. But to actually be able to get in touch with them then and create that relationship where you guys have a back and forth, you know, to kind of tap back into that loyalty, that must be pretty gratifying as an artist. It's it's amazingly gratifying to be able to tap into them. Uh, truth be told, we were all sort of late to the hmm. make sure you get everybody's email address fan sure. base stuff yeah. because, you know, you're just busy doing your work. You know, I sit in front of a piano with a blank right. piece of paper and right. I, that's what I'm doing right. and the people around me, we're all just trying to make sure we can pay our rent. We're not thinking so differently but suddenly, you know, when you relax and allow and allow yourself to be told a different story yeah. mm-hmm. and given, you know, and be given a different example of how to do this, yeah. Uh, suddenly everything is possible. And like I said before, it really turned into an adventure I didn't want to miss. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Well, one of your original songs on You Gotta Love the Life is um, Other End of the Phone, mm-hmm. which you co-wrote with legendary lyricist Hal David. It's so lonely walking the floor alone Just call me and I'll be Um, that was his last collaboration, I understand, it before was. he died in the fall of 2012. Yes. How did that opportunity come about? Uh, Hal was sitting next to me at a New Year's Eve party, and I asked him if he still wrote. He's quite elderly at the time. He said, oh, yes. And I, I went up to his uh, his apartment shortly after. And, you know, when you're starting with a new writer, you for me, I really want to know how their mind works and yeah. how they proceed and uh you know i i coyly said how do you do this because he had <laughs> such a gigantic career yeah prior and he said well you know I, I i don't know how do you do this and i said well usually i like to sit with people um and and converse and get yeah. to hear how they deal with language and what yeah. their ideas are or or somebody shows up with a list of ideas. I said, do you have any ideas? <laughs> and he said, just one moment. And he shuffled out of the room, and he came back with three ideas. <laughs> and two were unfinished. They were really just sketches. And on the other end of the phone was fully written. Wow. But because it's very spare writing, mm-hmm. because that's how he writes, yeah. I said, before I even approach this, because I am starting to hear the music, 
is this a draft or is this the final version? He said, no, that's the final version. He said, I studied journalism and I was taught to write very sparingly. Wow. And so this is how I write. Yeah. And I said, okay, then let wow. me go home. And I sat and I tried to I tried to notice where the breaths were, the unexpected commas. Mm, right. And as I was looking at it, I started to hear how Dionne Warwick would sing this mm-hmm. because Dionne built her career on the lyrics of Hal David right. and the music of Burt Bacharach. And I could start to fashion the unexpected space. Mm. And I started to hear the melody. Yeah. And I finally got it and I played it for him. And I, he sent me this lovely left this lovely voicemail on my phone in 2012 which i have kept on my phone of course how much he loved it and we reached out to dion to sing it because because of all the the reasons i had mentioned yeah and she agreed and what was lovely about having a woman sing on the song it was not constructed as a duet right but to have a woman sing on that lyric it it widened the under inner life, yeah. the underbelly, the inner life of the song, the conventional wisdom would have been to have a man singing and it would have been a romantic whatever. Right. Yeah. To have two women singing in solidarity, you know, yeah. you knock on the door at three in the morning, I'll be there. It was beautiful. Yeah. And because we're we're mature artists, uh, the, and because Dion has been in my life since I'm 15 years old, when I s- mm. first saw her at the Copacabana and wrote her a mash letter, <laughs> and oh, she wow. wrote me one right back that wow. was so encouraging, keep on. Wow. Keep on, wow. which I still have, oh, nice. and uh, it was just beautiful, you know. Yeah. And of course, the icing on the cake was to have the late, incredible Joe Sample playing on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it was. I mean, I have such reverence for these artists yeah. that uh, I was really blessed to have that happen. Yeah. Well, and there's quite a list of, yes. of the the artists that that yeah. came to be a part of this album. I mean, yeah. Keb Moe, Al yeah. Jarreau, yeah. Dave Cause. Yeah. And then anytime I see the name Stevie Wonder, oh really? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know I just perk up. And so he he played harmonica on "Your Love Is Where I Live." What we have is old-fashioned. You're a man as strong as stone. With the shelter that you offer, I feel sure that I've come home in a world. I've got more than I could give Your love is where I live Your love is where What can you tell us about working with Stevie? I wrote years ago on my Midnight Blue album, I had written a song about him. Carol Seger and I wrote a song about him, a tribute to him called Stevie's Wonder. Mm-hmm. And he heard it and he never forgot. Um, I had written this song, Your Love is Where I Live, with my esteemed colleague, Tom Snow. And uh, and we thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get Stevie to play on this? Mm. And I knew somebody in my circle who got to Stevie. And one night I was gigging in Florida. I get a phone call in the middle of the night. Melissa, it's Steve. Really? <laughs> he said, yes, yes, I'd like to play on your song. Is that okay? Oh, my goodness. I said, oh, righty. <laughs> I'll think about it. Oh, my goodness. All right, so here's the story. He shows up, and we're recording down at Citrus College. It is spring break, so there's nobody on campus except the guards. They all know who's going to be coming. Wow. And there's one group of students who have to do band practice, and they're down the hall from where we're recording. Okay, so Stevie shows up with his driver, his handler, his 
press agent, his makeup person, his nutritionist, well. and his box of harmonicas. I didn't know wow. you could have a box of harmonicas. All right, so he comes in and into the studio, and uh, he opened. He says, "What do you want? What do you want me to play?" And I said, "Well, Stevie Wonder, whatever you yeah. want to play." <laughs> right. I'm just thrilled you showed up. He said, "No, no. What what was your what was in your head? What was what was your idea?" So so Terry Wallman, my co-producer, and I gave him a. A, a sketch of what we were thinking. He goes into the studio with said box of harmonicas and he plays and he plays and he plays and he plays. He plays enough for a hundred songs. He just <laughs> wow. kept saying, wait, wait, let me do it better. Let me do it better. Let wow. me, do, you, do you think I got it? Well, you know, really. <laughs> okay, so then he's done. We leave. It's really time. We need to shut down the studio. Right. He's about to leave. All of his people are ready to pack him back into his car he hears the kids that I'd mentioned who are rehearsing down the hall. Try to imagine a crowd of people running after Stevie Wonder, who <laughs> is running towards the kids in the rehearsal studio. Oh, right? my gosh. We are all running after him. He stops in the room, and he's just at the threshold, and he's listening to, to the kids just rehearsing. And they stop because they see who's at the door. Wow. It is Stevie Wonder. That gives me goosebumps just hearing So one of the girls singers turns to Stevie Wonder and he said, and she said, would you like to sing with us? And he said, what do you got? And one of the kids said, well, we've been rehearsing Superstition. Oh, come on. He goes to the center mic and he starts bringing it. Right. And they start playing and the horn section is in the bleachers doing it perfectly right. and the roof blows off the place <laughs> oh, and we're all standing around with tears falling off of our faces right. and they and he sings and he sings and he sings and they bring it and they bring it and they bring it and when it was over you know everybody's just screaming <laughs> and he and he walks out he said all right and he says to the music director i'll be back this huh. is a community college. Wow. Oh my gosh. And when everybody is oh what is done and he finally gives everybody hugs and, and he they do leave. And I said to these young students, I said, Okay, now I really want you to understand the value of just what happened. <laughs> right. What, what just happened. Yeah. I said, You were in the presence of one of the greatest American songwriters in the pantheon that right. started with Stephen Foster all the way through Gershwin. All the way through Paul Simon, everybody that was incredible. Right. You were in his presence, and he gave you a big thumbs up, and they were just... They That's, were that is incredible. It's an incredible yeah, story. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, just thinking about being a student and having the opportunity to mm -hmm. soak up mm -hmm. wisdom from greatness, I understand that you were actually a, a student of mm -hmm. Paul Simon's at New York University. Is I that right? I was, yes. I had, I had gone to NYU for just a short amount of time, and... Uh, Paul, I guess, had six months off and felt like teaching. There was just merely a scrap of paper. I mean, this is before computers and right. internet and any of that stuff. It was just a scrap of paper on a bill uh, on a bulletin board that said "Songwriting and Record Production Taught by Paul Simon Auditions." Wow! And we were all looking at each other. You think it's that Paul Simon, <laughs> right. Simon and Garfunkel? And it was. And yeah. uh, he auditioned everybody individually and he brought me into into the room we're all just lined up you know sitting on, in the hallway brought me into the room and he asked me to to play a song and at that time uh, I was I was about 17 years old at that time Laura Nero was my muse mm -hmm. uh, there was just simply nobody who had ever sounded like her who ever wrote like her right. she was a very specific 
voice of the soul and of the the female soul mm. in particular. So I uh, so he asked me to Paul asked me to play a song and I played a song and then he asked me to play another song and he said play one more song and hmm. I played a third song he said you listen to Laura Nero a lot? I said oh all the time every day she's my muse day and night she's my my queen. He said it's time to stop now. Mm, wow. <laughs> and uh, he he selected 10 of the most interesting disparate representatives of young America and uh, and it was a fascinating class yeah um, the assignment was show up every week with a new song and somebody would be chosen and we would discuss it right. including him and at the time wow. bridge over troubles waters was number one all over the world and uh, and and it was it was astounding it was astounding what he spoke of and what he taught and it is what I pay forward it's what I teach mm. I mean, I, you know, you say Bridge Over Troubled Water, and that's right. one of those songs that I sit and I, and I have to remind myself that somebody wrote it. That's exactly Because, you know, <laughs> yes. you just, you feel yes. like that just existed. Just, he discussed that song in the class uh, because the main thing that he taught me, which I teach my students, is all of the stories have been told. Mm. It is the way you tell your story, which is your stamp of authenticity. Mm. And we discussed Bridge Over Troubled Waters. He said, well, you know, it was, it was certainly... Um, inspired by a gospel uh, uh, ballad, and he and and we all said, but that bridge, sail on silver girl, what, 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 <laughs> what? How did you, where did you pluck that from? And he said, you know, the truth is that bridge had nothing to do with the song. It was really a reflection of this girlfriend I had the t at the time. He was going prematurely gray, and I thought, wow. what an interesting idea. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to stay in this class for a really <laughs> long time. But he was yeah. he was a magnificent teacher. Wow. So you learned from him, then you got your first publishing deal. Right. Once you got that deal and you, and you stepped away from just listening to Laura Nero, yes. um, what, what were some of the things that you were first starting to write? Oh, well, at that time, you know, context is everything. And mm. historically, at that time, in the late 60s, very early 70s, the shape of the American song was, was being reimagined. It was, it, it, it was moving away from the the aesthetic of Moon June Spoon writing, mm -hmm. uh, which was very effective for a very long kind time. Kind of the old Tin Pan Alley. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly right. It was moving towards uh, a, a, a deepening reflection of psychology and, and a poetic element and an anthemic element. I mean, I was surrounded, um, the radio was reflecting this with Sly and the Family Stone and, mm -hmm. and early Beatles and Joni Mitchell and uh, early James Taylor and and more evolving Carol King, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack, and so so that's that's what I was taking as a cue. And um, I can't tell you that any of my songs were successful at that time, but I was because they weren't. But but I was welcomed into Chapel Music, which was not even yet Chapel Warner hmm. Warner Chapel. Yeah, and and I was just. You, you know, because I was a young writer, um, I don't know if you've all had this experience, but when you're a young writer, the writing voice sort of takes over your mind and is just on gush all yeah. the time. Mm. Yeah. You just need to write. And, and so that that was what my experience was. Well, yeah, you, you begin 
processing the things you see and hear as a writer all the time. almost yeah. before as a human all the time and of course you work out your stuff in the coffee houses right because you know i was in new york and played greenwich village and all the college coffee houses in the tri-state area well another uh former nyu student factors fairly prominently in your songwriting career and i'm talking of course about carol bayer sager who mm-hmm. wrote a groovy kind of love while oh, she yeah. was still a student at nyu and of course went on to write uh, a ton of hits like that's what friends are for and on my own and arthur's theme and all right. these all these great songs right. um one of the first songs that you ever had recorded by an artist was a song called heaven help us that yes. you and carol wrote together and which was recorded by beverly brimmers on the yes. scepter label in 1972 yes. how did you and carol first start working together carol came to see a bet midler concert and I was one of the founding members of the Harlettes. I was actually the toots in the middle. <laughs> and um, she, she needed a, a demo singer, and she contacted me, and she was working on a, a sweet project, and we got to talking, and she found out that I was also a, a writer, and I certainly knew of her hits, but we started to, to write together. Yeah. And we did the due diligence, we wrote all the time, hmm. every day, all the time for for a really long time. Yeah. Mean, we were writing partners for five years, which is long. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, how did you wind up? You say you were singing back up for Bet Midler. Mm-hmm. How did you How did you wind up doing that gig? Oh well, I was a studio singer. That's how I made my. That's how I made a living. Um, like demos and jingles and that type of demos thing. Demos and jingles, yeah. yes. And I was in a spectacular company of brilliantly talented demo singers, Patty Austin, Ashford and Simpson, yeah. brilliant songwriters in their own right, Barry Manilow, Ron Dante. And um, Barry was the music director for Bette Midler at oh, the time, that's right. mm. who had just been on the Johnny Carson show and yeah. just tore the place up. So Barry and I, you know, we knew each other. This is Barry Manilow you're talking Barry about? Barry Manilow, yeah. yes. Um, and um, Bette played at a place called the Continental Bathhouse on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I played in a club called The Focus up the street and diagonally across the street from the Continental Bathhouse. And uh, so he brought Bet to see me one night. And I finished my gig and uh, Barry introduced me to her. And um, I said, I saw you on the Carson show. Congratulations. Because, you know, we were all sort of traveling in a pack. You know, you just right. wanted to hear about who was doing best or yeah. or yeah. who was signed to a record label or a publishing label whatever because it was just it was just fantastic yeah um and she said she said well thank you very much and i'm getting ready for my first carnegie hall concert and i said wow you know barry was right there and i said wow are you going to have background singers at carnegie hall and she took a beat and she said i don't i don't know would you like to sing in back of me and i took a beat and i said well actually i like to sing instead of you, but I, in the meantime, <laughs> I'll be happy to sing it back. So Barry and I created what would end up to become the Harlettes, and I, I worked as the Toots in the middle for yeah. about six months, and then wow. I went on my own way. But it was it was a spectacular experience because she's so brilliant, and what she did in those early days for the very marginalized gay community mm. and brought them into a fold. It was. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Of, yeah. So that's a great opportunity and a great job, and you were making your living doing that. But at the same time, you kind of have 
the the soul and the voice of an artist wanting to do mm-hmm. your own thing. So how did it come about that you got your shot and your first record deal? Well, I had been trying, I had been sending in demos since I was 15 years old to record wow. companies. I mean, mm. that's where my money would go. You know, I'd save a little bit, but I, I was working it all the time and you know, I just kept sending demos into different record companies. There were several in those days, always getting rejected. It took me about you know seven years to finally uh, land a, a record deal, and it was with Bell Records. In those days, there were singles labels and album labels, okay. and Bell Records was known as a singles label. And dear Larry Utah was the president of that company, and um, and. They, I, <laughs> he set up an audition, and it was he and he, all of his head honchos and all of his A and R people and all of his promotional people, and I was playing at a fairly out of tune upright piano because <laughs> that's how you did it. Yeah, and I was tired that day. I was really tired. I don't know what I was doing, but I must have been playing at a coffee house the night before. But I was, just, I was weary, and. You know, you just play until they ask you to stop. Right. And I was playing and playing and playing and playing and playing. And when it was finally over, he, he said to me, um, how important is this to you? And I looked him right in the face and I said, listen to me, I'm going to do this with you or without you. Thank you very much. And uh, I left. Yeah. And I found out that Mr. Utah said, sign her up. Mm. And I was signed as an album artist on this singles on single, uh, label. Yeah. So he did this incredible thing. He left me alone to right. make an album. Right. So the debut album comes out, Hum to Myself, 1973. Mm-hmm. About 70% of the songs are ones that you and Carol mm-hmm. wrote together. You're continuing uh, that partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic album. Not not a, uh, not a big hit single that came off those first couple of records for Bell, but then... After you you did those first couple of Bell albums, that company morphed into Arista Records under mm-hmm. Clive Davis's leadership, and that's when you really got your commercial breakthrough with the mm-hmm. 1975 LP simply titled Melissa. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a gold album, and it spawned the breakthrough hit Midnight Blue, which became a, a top ten pop hit and went to number one on the adult contemporary chart. Whatever. Soon after, uh, just too many people from the same album became a top 40 pop hit, went to number two on the adult contemporary rankings. Stay. 
once you started having this success, mm -hmm. um, did it become more difficult to find the time to simply write songs while balancing the demands of becoming a celebrity? Well, uh, you know, the, the, um, the drill is that you write a bunch of songs, you record a bunch of songs, you go out, hope for tour support, you tour and tour and tour, start to come up with new ideas, and then you come home, rest up a bit, and start all over again. Hmm. So there were f sort of five years where that was just what I was doing. Yeah. I have no body memory of those five years. <laughs> right. I just have the evidence, but, right. but that's pretty much how, how you would do it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. I mean, you, you know, the, the saying is in the industry, the only thing harder than the first single is the second single. Yeah. Because yeah. you just don't know how the first single happened. You just don't. Right. And I, I will never forget that moment. We were in New Orleans, you know, a million years ago, where I started playing the refrain from Midnight Blue. And suddenly the place erupted. And you think, wow. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's been a seismic shift. Yeah. Right. And it, it, it is indeed. And, um, you know, it's, it's a major blessing because yeah. suddenly your, your audiences not only widen, but what you start to get back, the feedback, you know, the letters in those days from, from what the song m means to people and, yeah. and meant to people in those days. It's just phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You you mentioned before that with with Carol, you guys would would write every day for mm -hmm. that that five year time period, mm -hmm. um, and you sound like a person who who kind of keeps a disciplined approach to making sure you get to work a bit rather than just eh, I'm going to sit and wait for lightning to strike. Well, they were such fascinating conversations that ended up in these songs, and part of the the treasure of working with Carol Sager is that she had this has this very unusual talent. The thing about her lyrics is she has this uncanny ability to start a first line in what seems to be the middle of a discussion, wow. which pulls the audience in. The best example I can give you is when she wrote That's What Friends Are For. Mm -hmm. When she wrote that with Burt Bacharach, he, he is uh, very specific about his melody. Yeah. And he, he doesn't want a note changed. When he writes it, that's what it's going to be. Yeah. And she wrote a, a lyric to da 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 And he said to her, that's not what I wrote. I wrote... Da da da, right. da 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 and so she stuck an and yeah. and now on right yeah. and <laughs> I and oh, yeah. she and so and so that and pulls you as the listener right into what happened. Something's yeah. starting the first line with and yeah. what I miss. You know, <laughs> right. and you're suddenly along for the ride. Yeah. And she did that with Midnight Blue. Whatever it is, it'll keep to the morning. What yeah. happened? What right. what what I just miss? <laughs> right. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful, Great. beautiful. Well I want to skip ahead to your fifth album, Better Days and Happy Endings from nineteen seventy six. the first single, Just You and I, was yet another collaboration with Carol that hit number twenty seven on the pop chart and number three on the adult contemporary chart uh, and your partnership with Carol produced another top 10 on the adult contemporary chart with better days from that same album but I'm most interested to get your thoughts on the lead track happy endings
Although you have written plenty of songs by yourself over the years, I believe this is the only charting single that's credited to you solo. And I'm wondering if you have a, a personal preference when it comes to your own process to write alone and sort of keep it your voice and your vision or to collaborate. Do you prefer one or the other or they just have the different pros and cons? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, in the in the beginning of writing, because I was only writing with Carol for a very long time, I would have a sense, a visceral sense of an idea that I really wanted to hold back and just explore by myself. Mm. And then there were other ideas that I knew that I needed the conversation. Mm. And um, and I've sorted, sort of stayed mindful of that gut feeling when when I when I needed to just explore something by myself. Yeah. And I think happy endings is very much my voice. I yeah. really am a sucker for happy endings. I really yeah. I really didn't need to share that monologue with a co-writer. It sort of fell out of me. Yeah. yeah. Well, another notable song from the Better Days and Happy Endings album is Coming from the Rain, mm-hmm. which was not released as a single, sort of surprisingly, I think, um, but which did become a charting hit for the Captain and Tennille in 1977. Um, let's hear a little of their version. And a man like you will always choose the long way home. There's no right or wrong. I'm not here to blame. I just want to be the one who keeps you from the rain. From the rain. And it looks like sunny As a songwriter who primarily performs your own compositions, mm-hmm. what's that experience like for you of hearing someone else interpret your song? It's it's a fantastic experience to hear other people uh, record your song. You just don't know what another artist is going to bring to the reading of the composition. Um, and sometimes if the artist is evolved enough as in the case of Barbara Streisand they will ask they will actually ask you to to refine your composition for their purposes mm. um, I had recorded uh, for instance just one lifetime and when I heard that that Streisand was getting ready to record this album a love like ours for her then new husband James Brolin she I had sent her a demo of just one lifetime and and she liked the choruses very much and she said I just I just don't quite I can't quite follow the verses would you mm. consider rewriting them and nobody had ever asked me to do yeah. that and I went back to Tom Snow and I said what do you think you want to swim around this pool once or twice <laughs> and and we thought about Strice and we thought about the walk that she has taken and this ability to where she is in her life this ability to recognize a soulmate who apparently has allowed her to slow her soul down and opened it up and 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 we rewrote 
these, we deconstructed the songs, we rewrote these verses, but we kept the 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 choruses intact, and we we wrote a new bridge. At last, my heart is ready. This time, I can believe that love has truly found me. How sweetly love surrounds me. You're like a glimpse of heaven, a blessing I've received. I'll give you my tomorrows, but even now I can't see just one lifetime won't be enough time for us. I have to tell you, it's it's a more powerful song. Mm. Wow. Uh, it's a more focused song, and even though it was for her, I think in general the song got lifted somehow. The energy of the song mm. got lifted, and yeah. she sang it at her wedding and recorded wow. it. So yeah. it was just stupendous. Yeah. yeah, sort of like you were saying earlier, just because you wrote the song doesn't mean you know everything about it. Exactly right. We're coming back mm. to that. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, one of your best known songs and a song that I happen to love is Whenever I Call You Friend, Mm -hmm. which you co-wrote with Kenny Loggins and it became a top five duet for him and Stevie Nicks in 1978. chord changes in it i mm-hmm. mean it it moves and it climbs but it it draws you with it, it you know nothing just shocks you mm-hmm. how did you guys put that song together well uh kenny and i had first well we met because we kept we kept showing up at these uh new televised award shows and uh it was you know it was ridiculous we were meeting every two weeks we finally <laughs> decided to meet in a place without a powder puff in between us. so he came out he came over to my house and he had this idea and um the song the idea was in pieces and the the structure was sort of in pieces and um but yes those chords just kept showing up and uh it was every chord we could think of and when it was over uh you know he was part of Loggins and Messina yeah. mm-hmm. and I presented a demo version a very rudimentary demo version to uh, Clive Davis and he said oh, it's okay hmm. I said are you, are you sure it's just okay maybe it's my playing you don't want to listen to this again no it's not, you know, it's okay. Hmm. I said, you don't want me to record it with Kenny? Just 
you know, Loggins and yeah. Messina. Yeah, right. Let's review. That's no, okay. So Kenny went off and recorded it with Stevie Nicks. And, yeah. And I did a, you know, a sweet, mild version of it. But I'm, I, I love the song. And yeah. I love the structure. And I, I had a very funny encounter with Stevie Nicks a couple of years ago. I, you know, I said to her, it's just thrilling to see you mm. and thank you for your beautiful and unusual vocal performance of whenever i call you friend she said man that was hard to sing <laughs> that was so hard to sing right and right. and you know it never was for me and it's and it's an it's such an unusual you know a lot of the songs sort of written in between the spaces yeah and, yeah and the chords show up in between the spaces so yeah. it's even hard to teach sometimes sure. although i don't quite get why because it's not hard for me but right. anyway yeah. it's, it's been a journey you know that kind of like duet culture mm-hmm. in and music is an interesting one because you find some people that do a lot of it you know but the but the question is are the songs actually constructed as duets they may be i don't know because what was was whenever i call you friend constructed as a duet did it, you think of it yeah, that way yeah i think it was i mean i have certainly sung it many times without anybody else on stage you know right. if I'm teaching or, or just asked to to bang away at the piano i certainly can sing it as a duet but there's something in the structure of the song where the the you know the harmony the third above uh just just lifts right. that melody but yeah i think it it, it was inherently uh constructed that way yeah well, in 1979 and 1980, you had quite a few singles that you sang but didn't write. Um, thinking of Don't Cry Out Loud, mm-hmm. Pretty Girls, Fire in the Morning, If This Is Love, and of course, Through the Eyes of Love, the theme from Ice Castles, which was nominated for an Academy Award. Please don't let this feeling end. It's everything I am. Everything I want to be. How do you have the objectivity to know when to record one of your own songs and when to record a song that was written by someone else? Uh, thank you for that thoughtful question. You know, I consider myself a bridge artist. That means that I grew up in an era when sensational singers were written for hmm. by sensational writers, hmm. period. Yeah. The only people that would write for themselves mostly were folk artists. Right. And they hadn't come into mainstream in the pop world. They were absolutely in the folk world. Yeah. But the two had not merged yet. So that was my, that was the aesthetic that I grew up with. Yeah. And so I understand the value of a great song, and I'm not that proud to say, gee, I'm never going to sing anybody else's song but mine because... I, I'm a real singer. I know yeah. how to interpret songs, and I understand sure. the value of it because of those singers that I grew up with, listening Ella and Judy Garland and all those people. Yeah. So, um, so when I would hear my dear friends like Peter Allen and Carol Sager's composition, "Don't Cry Out Loud," I originally heard it the way Peter had performed it, which was very quietly as a lullaby, and oh. I thought. Now you're talking. This mm. is some magnificent song. And I thought, 
let's just record this exactly the way Peter did it quietly. Yeah. And Clive Davis thought it was a magnificent song, but he heard it as a freaking anthem, right, <laughs> which right. is what it turned out to right. be. And it took me a very long, I mean, I was sort of shell-shocked right. when I first heard the arrangement. Uh, and it it took me a while. Of course, I sang it all the time because yeah. of the, the blessing of it being so successful. But, but it took me quite a while to try to figure out what the audience was getting from this lyric mm. because it was the antithesis mm. of what Carol Sager and I had written about all those years, which is cry as loud as you can on street corners. Right. Make people know that, you know, what you're feeling and right. speak up for yourself, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and of course, now that, now that I've sung it for so long, I, I, I certainly understand what the core message of that song is, which which is the universality of all of us having to learn how to cope. Mm, That's yeah. really it. It's yeah. just in such beautiful language. Yeah, yeah. Well, how much influence uh, did the label have in in guiding you toward which songs to do, and and how much did you as an artist say, you know, this is this is my project. I'm going to choose which songs I'm doing. I wish I could say to you it was always, it's my project, I'm going to choose the songs. Right. <laughs> uh, because the, <clears throat> as you well know, the industry started to go through radical technical changes in the early 80s. It, it actually shifted the spotlight from, in my experience anyway, from the, from the artist with the great big voice, that would be me, to the producer mm. and what they were creating. Right. Mm. Uh, because he had all all these new toys right. to play with, and so so suddenly the record company trying to stay current, and me who has never been terribly interested in being current, mm -hmm. I've always been terribly interested in being timeless. No. Um, you know, you're under contract. You, they're going to, you know, and I write what I write. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, I was starting to have songs suggested to me and it it became very confusing for me yeah. mm. and uh because the songs that were being suggested to me just they just didn't sound like songs that i wrote they didn't even you know they were just different kinds of songs yeah and um and there was a lot of electronics and it yeah. just it was just a sonic world that i was not mm. used to yeah. so so that was you know i had to to dig deep yeah to justify songs that i would record and um and it was all a journey and there were mm -hmm. all adventures and, yeah you know well and you you won a grammy for your 1982 top five pop hit you should hear how she talks about you, there you go. and you, you know you didn't write that song and yeah. it certainly represents that much more beat driven synthesized era in pop music
this was way out of my comfort yeah, zone. Yeah. <laughs> and yet the truth is it's a sensational song. Yeah. And it, it did unexpectedly fantastically for me. Yeah. It made me queen of aerobics classes all across <laughs> this great nation. And now when I do it on stage and I do it with videos of that of me in those times, you know, I along with the audience can laugh at all of it and it's yeah. it's a great blessing. Well and I think that even uh, you should hear how she talks about you is a song that it, I mean, the record is very time bound. You know, mm -hmm. it sounds of its era, Absolutely. but you can sit down with a piano and play that song. That's exactly right. Right now, and That's it translates. Right. That's you know? right. It's called Standalone Song. Yeah. Right. And I'm curious after you had the success of that album, you did a couple more records for Arista mm -hmm. um, before you headed over to MCA and did another album kind of in the same vein, the Mathematics album, mm -hmm. similar, that sort of pop thing. Um, but your next album uh, was 1989's Tribute, mm -hmm. and that was not an album of original material. Mm -hmm. You did a lot of classic songs by writers like Harold Arlen and Hoagie Carmichael and Duke Ellington and the Gershwins, mm -hmm. and you did a version of uh, Burt Backrack and Hal David's Walk On By, mm -hmm. coming back to those guys. Mm -hmm. um, for you, was that project kind of a, a statement of reasserting the centrality of, of songs versus technology, or was it just kind of a coincidence? Oh, no, there was no coincidence there. I just wanted to acknowledge the timelessness of these these monumental artists. Yeah. And I think I think when when all of the dust of how songwriting and the music industry settles, these compositions and those composers and songwriters, they'll you know, they'll just be standing patiently and we're all going, <laughs> "Wow, you're so great." And the Gershwins and Arlen and Hoagie Carmen, they'll all say, yeah, we were here all the time. Just waiting <laughs> yeah. for you to come back. Just, yeah, cyclical. Yeah. Well, because they're the gold standard bearers. Right, yeah. right. Well, in 2004, you released When I Looked Down That Road, which was your first album in a very long time where you were a writer on every song. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a pretty organic record in terms of the instrumentation and a return to that focus of your self-pinned material. Mm -hmm. The closing track is a live version of a song you wrote with Karen Taylor Good called A Mother's Prayer. As I lay me down to sleep It's not for me, I ask But my children's souls to keep It seems the world is going crazy And though I need to do my share Could you please take them underway Watch over them especially Keeping them safe from everything This is a mother's prayer That sounds like a, a very personal song. What inspired you? Uh, I, I wrote that in Nashville, actually. I was waiting at LAX to catch my flight People, I could see people were looking at a uh, at a TV screen, and I stopped and, and joined the crowd to see what they were looking at, and it was uh, the Columbine massacre, mm. and I was um, deeply shaken. And I met with Karen Taylor Good the next day, and I said, uh, "I don't know what you were planning on writing, but I really need to write this out of me because mm. I don't know what to do with this pile of sorrow." Mm. And we wrote a mother's prayer, and. Um, 
And that's when we record. That's when I recorded it. Well, as we begin to kind of come to the end of mm-hmm. a of a great conversation, thank you. We've talked a lot about the singles and about the hits, but I wonder: is there a particular song that you've written that didn't get as much attention, that the world didn't hear a lot about, but is one of your personal favorites? Wow. <laughs> you want to oh get back to us tomorrow? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness. There's a song called Lights of Dawn. Hmm. And I wrote it from traveling on the road, being on the road so much, and it's just my impressions of 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 what what it is to be on the road and um and what it is to to have that that wandering soul. Mhm. And uh, so, yes, I think about that song from time to time. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, we're going to close with this question, but I, but I want to come back around uh, again to the new album. Uh-huh. In the title track, you got to love the life. It, yep. it refers to loving the life mm-hmm. of being an artist and an entertainer. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you're saying is that you really have to love it, to stick it out, mm-hmm. you know, to stay in there through all the ups and downs. And you've certainly hung in there through many years mm-hmm. and changing musical tastes, and you've mm-hmm. continued to find ways to create art. Mm-hmm. What would you say to young songwriters about maintaining that spirit and the attitude that it takes through all the ups and downs? Well, that song, You Gotta Love the Life, came out of a discussion, actually, with my daughter because uh, she was considering choosing this artistic path. You have to love this version of normal. <laughs> this is a very unsteady, not sane, and not secure version of life. However, because you explore life through your art it is fascinating and you come into contact with people saints and scoundrels Hmm. who are who are constantly informing you and this version of normal just simply appeals to me (laughs) but really if you have a a breath of hesitation really don't do it Mm. it's too hard because it's mostly about the grit if Mm. you can find the joy in the midst of the grit then then sign up because yeah. there is nothing like it. Let's get that engraved on a stone tablet. <laughs> I'll put it at the door of my house. We can put it at every music school That's in the true. country. Yeah. It's uh, true. No, it's, it's, it's realistic and inspiring at the same time. Thanks. Well, cool. and I know that we are really glad that you love the life because that means you've given us a lot of great music for many years and we look forward to, to much more to come. And we thank you again for this amazing conversation today. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Melissa Manchester for spending some time with us today and talking about her amazing career and her amazing songs. If you'd like to find out more about Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters, please stop by our website at songcraftshow.com. Thanks for listening. Stuff for the knockdown.